0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Josh Rubner, adjunct lecturer of justice and peace studies at Georgetown University, who examines the underlying causes of the current violence and loss of life in Israel, Palestine. John Fusel, of the church-affiliated social justice group Tree of Life Educational Fund, who spoke at a May 15th rally in opposition to Israel's bombardment of the Palestinian civilian population in Gaza. And Mario Murillo, vice dean and professor at the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication at Hofstra University, who discusses the current nationwide protests in Colombia, which has been met with deadly police violence. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Thirty-five years ago, a radioactive plume fell over Europe after the nuclear explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear complex in Ukraine. The 1986 accident and loss of life was one of the many factors that contributed to the downfall of the Soviet Union. Today, Ukraine is one of the world's most dependent nations on nuclear power. Half of the electricity in Ukraine's energy grid is produced by 15 reactors at four nuclear stations. Al Jazeera reports that with the ongoing conflict between Russian-speaking separatists and the government in the East and Russia's cutoff of coal and natural gas supplies, Ukraine's leaders see little alternative but to continue their dependency on nuclear energy. But domestic and international critics claim that Ukraine's nuclear industry faces a perennial crisis caused by corruption, safety problems with aging reactors, disruption of ties with a Russian nuclear monopoly, and a politicized switch to U.S.-made nuclear fuel. Many of Ukraine's nuclear reactors, built in the 1980s, are operating on extended licenses with some safety upgrades but critics maintained that the upgrades were performed poorly and warned that these zombie reactors could be prone to a future catastrophic accident. Infighting within South Africa's ruling African National Congress boiled over as party leaders moved to suspend ANC Secretary General Ace Magashul over his indictment on 21 graft charges last November. The charges stemmed from a $23.5 million contract to remove hazardous asbestos roofing, work that was never fulfilled. The suspension was carried out by the majority of the ANC leadership council, loyal to President Cyril Ramaphosa. Magashul is an ally of former President Jacob Zuma, who was tied to multiple corruption scandals. After the ANC suspended Magashul pending the outcome of his trial, he openly fought it. Foreign Policy magazine reports that Magashul responded by moving to suspend Ramaphosa over corruption allegations made against the president's election campaign. Magashul's supporters see his suspension as an attempt by Ramaphosa to weaken opposing factions once powerful during the Jacob Zuma era. In an interview, Magashul accused the party of politicizing issues like radical economic transformation, the country's policy position on Israel, and even the acquisition of the Russian COVID-19 vaccine. The ANC's National Executive Committee has demanded that Magashul apologize and accept his suspension or face expulsion. During his divisive four years as president, Donald Trump recruited a new generation of mega donors to the Republican Party who shared his extremist views and fondness for conspiracy theories. Julia Jenkins-Fancelli, heir to the public supermarket chain Fortune and a fan of far-right conspiracy promoter Alex Jones, was the prime donor supporting the January 6th rally, the prelude to the terrorist insurrection on Capitol Hill. Fancelli pledged $300,000 to bankroll the rally. In a new report, ProPublica identified 29 individuals and couples who gave over $1 million to Trump and Republican committees since 2015. These top Republican donors, many new to national politics, included Timothy and Patricia Mellon, real estate developers and heir to the Mellon Bank fortune, Ike Perlmutter, chairman of Marvel Entertainment, and Dallas billionaire Kelsey Warren owner of Energy Transfer Partners, which operates the controversial Dakota Access Pipeline and doubled his wealth under Trump. Many of these wealthy mega donors appear to share the more extreme views of Trump supporters based on social media posts promoting falsehoods about election fraud or masks and vaccines. For those who got involved in politics because of their personal ties to Trump, it's not clear if their future financial support will extend to other GOP candidates. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: In the deadliest conflict between Israel and Hamas since 2014, Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 213 Palestinians, including 61 children and 36 women, with more than 1,400 people wounded, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Twelve people in Israel, including a five-year-old boy and a soldier, have been killed by rockets fired from Gaza by Hamas into Israel. While Egyptian diplomats were attempting to negotiate a ceasefire, The Biden administration blocked the U.N. Security Council three times from issuing a joint statement calling for an immediate end to hostilities. Just hours after President Biden said he would support a ceasefire on May 17th, dozens of Israeli jets launched more than 100 missiles into the densely populated Gaza Strip. The violence is not limited to Gaza. As Jewish nationalists and Palestinians engaged in running street battles in Jerusalem, Protests were mounted against the forced removal of 13 Palestinian families from their homes in East Jerusalem, and Israeli police attacked Palestinians at Al-Aqsa Mosque. Your reporter spoke with Josh Rubner, adjunct lecturer of justice and peace studies at Georgetown University. Here he examines the underlying causes of the current violence in Israel-Palestine and the Biden administration's response to the crisis.
2: Right, well, the most recent Spark for this conflagration that we're seeing right now was the result of Israel trying to forcibly expel Palestinian families from their homes in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which is in Jerusalem. And there are also major, major plans to ethnically cleanse, through the demolition of Palestinian homes, a huge neighborhood called Silwan, uh, also in Jerusalem. between these expulsions and these home demolitions, Israel is planning to ethnically cleanse almost 2,000 Palestinians from Jerusalem. So there is massive, massive Palestinian protest uh, against these attempts to ethnically cleanse uh, East Jerusalem of their indigenous Palestinian inhabitants. This took place during the holy month of Ramadan, and as Palestinians attempted to pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, as you mentioned, they were met by force with rubber bullets, uh, with tear gas canisters, with stun grenades that were all shot into the mosque by Israeli police in a very extremely inflammatory and provocative uh, move. Can you imagine if there were a Muslim army that invaded a Jewish synagogue and shot at worshippers during a a holy day, it would be unconscionable. So all of of this brutality, all of this violence, all of this attempt at ethnically cleansing Palestinians from Jerusalem happened before there was any Hamas rocket that was fired at Israel. And by the way, Hamas gave Israel warning that you better stop what you're doing in Jerusalem or else we're going to fire rockets. And Israel decided, oh, well, we don't care. We want an escalation. And uh, after the rockets were fired, Israel began its much, much more devastating uh, assault on the Gaza Strip that has killed more than 200 Palestinians in just one week, including entire families that have been obliterated. And the difference between the Hamas rockets—well, there are many differences, but one difference between Hamas rockets And the weapons that Israel is firing from attack helicopter gunships, from fighter jets, from drones, is that we in the United States are paying for these weapons for Israel to kill Palestinian civilians. It's our taxpayer dollars in the form of $3.8 billion every year that is going to obliterate Palestinian homes, entire apartment buildings that we've seen targeted for destruction, by Israel. Entire Palestinian families that have been wiped out have been killed by fighter jets that are firing what are called joint uh, direct attack munitions, or JDAMs for short. And the Biden administration actually put forward a quote-unquote sale—it's not a sale, we're giving Israel the weapons with our tax dollars—a quote-unquote sale of $735 million. For more of these weapons, as Israel is using them in violation of U.S. law, in violation of international law, to commit these atrocities against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. This is the difference. We are not arming Hamas. We are sanctioning Hamas. We are sanctioning the Palestinians in so many ways through U.S. law. Yet we give Israel the weapons to perpetrate these massacres against Palestinians that we're seeing today. Every single person in this country should be outraged by that fact that our taxpayer dollars are responsible directly for the killing of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank today.
0: There's been a lot of discussion and hope for a negotiated ceasefire. However, the Biden administration has remained fairly silent over this past week of conflict. And my understanding is that the United States, under Joe Biden, has blocked a call for such a ceasefire from the United Nations Security Council. Your view on that, Josh?
2: Well, that's exactly right. The Biden administration has been actively working to prevent the U.N. Security Council from meeting to pass a resolution to impose a ceasefire. And no, the Biden administration has not been silent at all. The Biden administration has been incredibly vocal in providing Israel with the green light that it needs and that it wants to go forward with these atrocities. The Biden administration has given Israel carte blanche justification by saying that everything that Israel is doing is entitled to it under the principle of self-defense, while not allowing Palestinian people to have a right of self-defense. How can the right of self-defense be selective? How can you say to a people who are under a settler colonial apartheid regime, under military occupation, living under a blockade in the Gaza Strip for the last 15 years, that they don't have a right for self-defense? Who is the aggressor and who is the victim here? So the Biden administration, not only by trying to provide these additional weapons, but by giving Israel the green light, by saying what Israel is doing is self-defense, has put its thumb on the scales, has given Israel the green light and the go-ahead to attack Palestinians so ferociously. And just before we came on air, I did see something on social media that finally, 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 after all of this pressure – after Palestinians have been demonstrating and getting shot and killed for demonstrating, after tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people took to the street in the United States over the past weekend to protest, that finally, 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 after all of this killing, the Biden administration now is supposedly supporting a ceasefire. Where was the Biden administration when it could have spoken out and stopped these Israeli atrocities against Palestinians before the first firing of a Palestinian rocket. It's this U.S. complicity, it's this U.S. blank check that is responsible for this conflagration that we're seeing.
0: That was Josh Rubner, adjunct lecturer of Justice and Peace Studies at Georgetown University and author of the book Shattered Hopes, Obama's Failure to Broker Israeli-Palestinian Peace. Find more analysis and commentary on the Israel-Palestine conflict by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For the past 73 years, Palestinians at home and abroad have marked the Nakba, or catastrophe, on May fifteenth, when in 1948, hundreds of thousands of residents were forced from their homes by the new state of Israel, which was supported by the U.S., And United Nations resolutions. This year, Palestinians around the world were joined by others to condemn the Israeli military, which invaded Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, one of the holiest sites in Islam, at the end of the holy month of Ramadan. Israeli settlers also moved to evict Palestinian families from the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where they settled after the Nakba. For years, those settlers have occupied the homes, with Palestinian families still living in them. After Hamas began firing rockets into Israel, the Israeli military launched airstrikes into Gaza, destroying buildings and infrastructure of the most densely populated city in the world. As of May 18th, more than 200 Palestinians have been reported killed, and 12 Israelis have died from rockets fired into Israel's cities and towns. Major protests have been organized across the world, to voice opposition to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhus attended a rally in Hartford, Connecticut on May 15th, where hundreds of Palestinians and their supporters gathered at the Federal Building, many waving Palestinian flags and chanting in Arabic and English. One of the speakers at the rally was John Fusel, vice president of the church-affiliated social justice group Tree of Life Educational Fund.
3: Our tax dollars provide 20 percent of Israel's military budget, a country only slightly larger than the state of New Jersey. Connecticut taxpayer share is approximately $80 million a year. Our tax dollars from Connecticut would be far better spent helping our underpaid and overworked nursing home workers or investing in our children's education. Congressional support for Israel's military budget continues without placing any human rights conditions on these expenditures. As the Israeli settlers attack, dispossess, and displace Palestinians from their homes in East Jerusalem, Representative Larson, Courtney, DeLorell, Hines, and Hayes have remained silent. Move. 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 Some people refer to the events in Sheikh Jarrah as an eviction, but we are witnessing it's not an eviction. An eviction implies a legal process. There's nothing legal about the ongoing occupying power displaying the indigenous Palestinian population with Jewish settlers from Brooklyn and Chicago. Such conduct is a clear violation of the 4th Geneva Convention. We watch as military forces from Israel attack peaceful Palestinian protesters with rubber-coated bullets and tear gas, and we cry out in grief. But Representatives Larson, Courtney, DeLauro, Himes, and Hayes have remained silent. Our corporate media refer to these Israeli soldiers as, quote, the Israeli Defense Force. But a better name would be the Israeli offense force, or or, or the Israeli occupation force, or the Israeli apartheid force. Why does our Congress continue to give Israel $3.8 billion a year without requiring Israel to respect human rights and international law? Our nation's policy has only served to embolden Israeli aggression and apartheid, not bring peace and justice. My friends, isn't it time that we demand our elected officials to end the failed policy of unconditional support for Israel? Yes! 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 Isn't it time that we say, hey Israel, if you take our tax dollars, then you must respect our values. There's a few in Congress who do place the values of peace, freedom, justice, and equality over unconditional military aid to Israel? On April 15, Representative Betty McCollum introduced into Congress H.R. 2590. This legislation, if passed, promotes and protects the human rights of Palestinians living under Israeli military occupation. The legislation will ensure that the government of Israel does not use United States taxpayer dollars to, one, support the military detention of Palestinian children, two, the unlawful seizure and destruction of Palestinian property, or three, further annexation of Palestinian land in violation of international law. Brothers and sisters, this is America telling Congress, stop your complicity in Israel's apartheid crimes.
0: That was John Fusel, Vice President of the Tree of Life Educational Fund. Learn more about House Bill 2590, the Palestinian Children and Families Act, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For three weeks, hundreds of thousands of Colombians have taken to the streets in large cities and small towns to protest the nation's dire economic situation and rising inequality amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The police response to the protests has been violent, with more than 40 people killed, including one police officer. Over 900 cases of police use of excessive force against protesters has been reported some of which could constitute torture or other cruel and human or degrading treatment, according to Amnesty International. There are additional reports of sexual violence against at least 12 women and the disappearance of dozens of activists. A neoliberal tax proposal by Colombia's unpopular president, Ivan Duque, set off the unrest. Although Duque withdrew his tax measure in the face of major opposition— Protesters are demanding a guaranteed minimum income, the withdrawal of a health reform plan that critics charge will further erode the already failing health care system, and an end to indiscriminate police violence. Your reporter spoke with Mario Mario, vice dean and professor at the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication at Hofstra University, and author of Columbia and the United States, War, Unrest, and Destabilization. Here he discusses the current nationwide protests in Colombia, police violence, and the U.S. role in providing aid to the Colombian police and military.
4: A lot of the news reports talk about a tax reform bill that was being proposed by President Duque and the right-wing democratic Center government in power, a tax reform bill uh, that was essentially meant to make up for a lot of the economic hardships that occurred as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the close of the the economy. But in many ways, the tax reform bill was the spark. The gasoline had already been spreading throughout the country for many years, really since 2016, after the peace accord between the then government of Juan Manuel Santos and the rebels of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, were signed, ending five decades of conflict but that were never truly implemented, and that led to many other problems uh, as a result of that. But the latest general strike was more, more directly a continuation of a massive general strike that took place in 2019, again, over very similar issues, economic, social issues. This most recent tax proposal by the finance minister, Alberto Carrasquilla, was rejected Outright by the National Strike Committee from 2019, it was being put forward in Congress in early April, and social movements said this is enough is enough. Uh, essentially, the tax measure was meant to give discounts to major corporations. It was a kind of a trickle-down approach uh, that we're so familiar with here in this country, um, and that led to the protests that were organized in, 19, in 2019. But now, with insult to injury, as as the uh, economy was tanking as the public health system completely collapsed. As workers and 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 the poor primarily were most detrimentally impacted by COVID-19. I think the the numbers are the public numbers are 90% of the deaths in Colombia from COVID were basically people in the poverty below the poverty level. So the upper classes were not really being impacted as much. Um, and essentially, they said this is this is out of control. Uh, and ironically, the government Duque, the name of the law was the Sustainable Solidarity Law, and it was supposed to essentially recoup revenue that that was lost during the COVID crisis. But it didn't address many of the other issues, so basically people went out of, out of their way to you know say no to this, uh, and and hit the streets. But it was made worse by the response of the government because um, the the government instead of Recognizing that the public was just fed up with this, their response was to hit them head-on head on, uh, militarily, physically. The day before the protest and the national strike was called on the 28th of April, uh, Duque called on the Supreme Court of Colombia to call these protests during the time of COVID unconstitutional, which was actually unconstitutional in and of, in and of health. And then basically the people said, this is, this is outrageous, and hit the streets. Unfortunately, again, the right-wing in Colombia, represented most visibly by the failed president of Iván Duque, but really led by the former president, uh, Álvaro Uribe Vélez, their argument to any political opposition is this is directed by terrorists, by guerrilla sympathizers, by the former FARC, by Maduro's government, by uh, Gustavo Petro, the left-leaning former mayor of Bogotá, who's probably the leading candidate for the presidency coming up in 2022, as opposed to looking at this as very widespread popular mobilization by every sector you can think of in Colombian society. Uh, and, and their response was militarization, direct confrontation, and that led to even more protests that we've now seen just about for three weeks.
0: Mario, tell us about what Congress could do in this moment of crisis in Colombia in terms of restricting the military and police aid that is contributing to the violence there on the ground.
4: The Leahy laws, you may know, is a law that puts substantial human rights conditions on any kind of security assistance to any country. It was actually created as a result of the Many years of mobilizing against the human rights violations that were happening in Colombia back in the 1990s right so I was involved in some of that organizing a long time ago and so the law is is meant to freeze assistance to Colombian security forces um, and the Colombian government obviously always genuflex to to U.S. pressures. Unfortunately, the Biden administration, you know, they talk out of two sides of their mouth. Uh, The good thing is that you do have members of Congress that just signed a letter to the State Department. Uh, I think it was released on the 14th. Representative uh, Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, along with 55 others, signed the letter demanding Secretary Blinken to denounce the the violence that's going on in Colombia, call for de-escalation, and, and do something about it using that military assistance as, as part of the leverage. But clearly, putting pressure on Colombia uh, and using the security assistance as leverage is a lot because the Colombian government doesn't want to lose any of that so security assistance. So it, that, that's perhaps the most uh, direct way in which uh, the U.S. public could play a role in, in uh, stopping the violence that's going on right now.
0: That was Mario Murillo. Vice Dean and Professor at the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication at Hofstra University. Learn more about calls for Congress to suspend weapons sales, training, and direct assistance funding to Columbia's National Police Force by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellows Falls, Vermont, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KUGS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikita. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.